Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown. Stephen Schultz from Momentum joins me this evening to guide us through the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Carl Hewitt from Signia to discuss their fourth industrial revolution global equity fund. All that way coming your, shortly, your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making headlines. US and Chinese officials ended two days of trade talks with no major breakthrough. Instead, the trade war escalated with the activation of another round of tariffs on $16 billion worth of each country's goods. On the other hand, US and Mexican trade negotiators have reached an agreement to revise key parts of the 24-year-old North American Free Trade Agreement, which President Trump says has been a disaster for American workers. Meanwhile, Canada is set to rejoin the talks once Mexico and the US resolve their issues. An earnings news department store retailer Target reported its strongest st same store sales growth in 13 years, surpassing analysts' expectations as the company benefited from the bankruptcy and store closures of some of its competitors, such as Toys R Us and the Bonton bon store. Target has been focusing on reinvesting in its businesses with a $7 billion plan to expand its e-commerce platform, where online sales rose 41%. The group has also lifted its profit forecasts for the year. And the benchmark S&P 500 index clinched its longest ever bull market run on Friday, closing above its previous January high as Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell affirmed the U.S. Central Bank's current pace of rate hikes. Here's more on that. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq rose to all-time highs on a broad-based advance on Friday spurring investors to buy comments by Fed Chair Jerome Powell, Fort Pitt Capital Group Portfolio Manager Kim Forrest. Well, I think he's striking the right balance between acknowledging that inflation could pop up, that it's the Fed's responsibility to try to squelch it, but also he needs to continue to raise rates and not squelch growth. So it's a tightrope that he's walking here. At the annual conference of central bankers in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Powell endorsed the Fed's current policy. He said further interest rate hikes were the best way to protect the U.S. economic recovery and keep job growth strong and inflation under control. Powell's address drove some bank stocks higher, such as Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Netflix advanced after SunTrust Robinson upgraded the video streaming company shares to buy from hold. Gap shares dropped sharply. Quarterly same-store sales of the apparel retailer's flagship Gap brand fell more than expected. Shares of sporting goods retailers plunged after comparable sales at Foot Locker and Hibbit Sports fell short of analyst targets. A rally in energy and tech stocks drove major European markets higher. Stephen Schultz from Momentum joins me now. Stephen, thanks for joining us in studio. I want to kick off with uh, comments from Jerome Powell at Jackson Hole. We were both saying in the break, it's economic nerdery, but man, we would love to go there. He made a great point. He said he wants to rely more on data-informed judgment, less on some of the model and theoreti theoretical values. And in a sense, I mean, it, it's dry comment, but it's almost he's saying, you know what, the theory is great, but actually focus on the numbers more. And to me, that, that makes a, it seems like a sensible, a sensible transition, which being a central banker, I'm sure he's going to do slowly and cautiously. Yeah, so look, at, it's his first uh, speak, uh, first speak speech at the Jackson Hall meeting. Um, truth is, he pretty much stuck to script. 
Um, no real surprises there. I mean, suggesting that data is going to either validate or influence decisions is something that we've we've received a lot of rhetoric from from previous yeah. Fed chairs. Um, I think by very nature it is an uncertain exercise. So, so data being there, great. But the truth is, one needs to feel their way. Um, I still think we're going to have two interest rate increases this year, taking us to a total of four. So, so once again, it's quite it's quite unusual that the market has been so encouraged by these statements. Um, nothing new, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. And also, just two three years ago, the thought of interest rate increases spooked the market. Um, suddenly, the market's like, "Wow, that tells us everything's doing great." I mean, the, the market is a, a, a weird place. Yeah. So I suppose the the real challenge now is we're starting to see asset bubbles uh, start to inflate. We see inflation building up nicely in the U.S. economy, and the truth is now we need to see interest rate increases start to deflate these early bubbles. Um, the truth is, if history is anything to go by, um, gradual, measured, data-reliant interest rate increases is not going to save the day. Um, it is very unusual to raise interest rates um, this late in the cycle without creating some sort of market yeah. turmoil, which uh, is to be expected. And you talk of market turmoil, I mentioned their longest uh, bull run ever on the S&P 500. Bull run is defined as no 20% pullback uh, since 9 March 2009, when Greenspan mentioned those magic words, green shoots, um, pretty much upwards since then. Is this a worry? I mean, we, you talk about rise, raising rates. Uh, you know, tenure at the U.S. is, is, is 284, nudging that 3%. Um, and my, my teaching in the stock market was, you know, bull markets die on rising rates. Yeah, look, we're seeing champagne corks popping, confettis flying. Um, and I suppose for good reason. We've seen a phenomenal round of results coming through for the second quarter. Sure. Uh, unemployment at a 17-year uh, low. Um, we're seeing a healthy inflation buildup, but still the Reserve Bank remaining committed to, to a disciplined and gradual increase. So I think all the signs are there for, for the disco ball to continue spinning inevitably forever. Um, but the truth is, as it is a cycle. Uh, and like all cycles, it does come to an end. And I, I suspect that that it is probably going to surprise us sooner rather than later. Yeah, as we're saying, I mean, we are definitely, unless this is an 18-year bull market, we are closer to the end than the beginning. And Undoubtedly. I, I would love an 18-year-old, but I wouldn't put money on an 18-year-old bull market. In, in, in sense of how, how do you play this? I mean, are you, are you actively moving into cash? Are you being cautious with deploying cash? Are you, are you finding value in pockets? And I know we're going to talk about Kraft Heinz in a bit. How are you playing these, these, these concerns, which are at this point in a market, reasonable. Yeah, so this is probably the toughest part in a market cycle. Um, and the reason why I say that is we're still seeing some of these very aggressive uh, tech stocks which trade at exorbitant valuations running ahead. Um, seemingly nothing is stopping them. Um, but the reality is valuations don't suggest they're a particularly good investment at the moment. So the sort of things you need to have in your portfolio and, and many of them accompanied with great business cases. But there's also strong uh, motivation for having cash in portfolios, um, hard currency cash in stable currencies, US dollar in particular, mm -hmm. um, and consumer staples, uh, a great holding in one's portfolio. So you sort of need to be a little bit of everything at the moment. Let's touch on the consumer staples, uh, Kraft Heinz. I mean, consumer staples are the sort of things, and in their case, I'm going to say baked beans, but I know there's way more to it than in the, you know, t toothpaste, razors, those sort of things. I can shop down, but I can't stop brushing my teeth. Yeah, look, so, so uh, Kraft Heinz is a, is a particularly interesting one. Um, it is, of course, a consumer staple, so mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how much volatility in the market and how bad things get. Truth is, people need food and toilet paper, um, so it does have a, a pretty captive audience in that regard. It is a counter that is quite significantly down, um, so you'll recall the, the talks for a potential acquisition with its primary uh, competitor, Unilever. 
That failed uh, February last year, and since then we're down about 35% in dollar terms. Um, it is, of course, a company that, that has struggled of late, so revenue growth is, is pretty much sideways, to be generous. We saw very average results come through in the second quarter. Um, but it is trading at a deep discount. Um, price to book value of one, which is almost wow. unheard of. Um, it trades at a P of 16 in, in a US context is, is by no means expensive. It's aggressive cost cutting um, has led it to, to probably the most generous margins in the industry as a, as a US food retailer. So if it can get revenue growth up, I think it's generous upside. And of course, rumors surfacing again that it is lining up an acquisition, this time Campbell uh, Soups. Ah, of course, that's what I'd heard about it recently, Campbell Soups. And doesn't Buffett have a stake in there via um, Berkshire Hathaway? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And, and it's the sort of thing that, that you can see in railways. And I mean, I, I call them boring, but I don't call them boring in a disparaging sense. I yep. call them boring. They're, they're a nice corner of your portfolio. And when things go horribly wrong, they, they suddenly become quite attractive. I think stable and boring is exactly what you need at this, this time in the market. So staying kind of a stable and boring, target results were, were frankly not bad. Um, same source sales up 4.4%. Uh, Online starting to, to work. Uh, we saw last week uh, Walmart numbers come out, and Walmart wasn't looking too bad either. We're seeing some of the uh, this retail apocalypse that Amazon was going to basically, you know, slaughter everything in its path. Maybe not so much. Yeah, so, so undeniably two points for bricks and mortar retailers. Um, I think both companies are once again finding a rhythm and, and finding themselves in their stride. Um, but the truth is, I think more than, more than anything else, it's the shape of the American consumer. So they're back, they're spending, um, and I think those are, that's what's feeding through in these numbers. Um, best results we've seen in 13 years in the case of Target. Um, but I think, I think what we're seeing is US consumers still being attracted to online retailers. So we saw 41% yeah. growth in online retailing from, from Walmart. We saw 40% come through from, from um, Target. The truth is it is still only 5 6% of their total sales, so, so not moving the needle. But if you compare that to, to Amazon's uh, quarterly earnings, which, which impressed, um, 43 billion US dollars for the quarter in sales. So I don't think that this is by any measure a move away from online towards bricks and mortar, unfortunately. But you make the great point that, that the American consumer is booming. They've also, as I said in my intro, Absolutely. some of their competitors, direct or indirectly, have disappeared. But they're also, as opposed to consumer staple, more consumer discretionary. Yes, you might be buying your staples at Target or, or Walmart, but you're also picking up other bits that when things get a little bit tougher, you're going to walk past that aisle. You're going to pretend it isn't there. Absolutely. Uh, it's trendy, it's fashion, it's electronics, etc. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all of that sort of thing. I, I quickly want to touch on, on Tesla. I mean, this is just a mess. Elon Musk goes yeah. with his tweet, uh, funding secured, 420 going private. Turns out funding not secured, turned out not going private. Does this, I mean, not into the mechanics of Tesla and the investment, does something like this, if this was happening to an, a company you were invested, would you look at this and think, you know what, this is a, a CEO is a little off tilt and maybe I should actually go and put money elsewhere. Yeah, so look, I'll, I'll admit it, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tesla and, and yep. by extension, perhaps even a bigger fan of, of Elon Musk. Um, but one thing's for sure, he's making an absolute mess of Wall Street at the moment. Um, I'm not quite sure who's going to tie first, whether it's Elon Musk from his unorthodox work, work style um, or investors themselves. Um, it, it is very unfortunate. Um, I, s I saw they were opened down slightly yeah. um, from his on again, off again, um, private, taking the company private. But I suppose the real bottom line here is he should be focusing on a ramp up of production for Model 3s. You know, they're currently producing somewhere with 
previous quarter between 26 and 28,000 vehicles. We need 50 to 55. So yeah. he's got to double um, production of, of that particular model to, to make a go of it and, and to remain in a cash flush position. So you really want to see CEO's efforts to be focused there and, and not on Twitter or, or any, any SEC violations. So we're going to have a lot of distraction in the form of a regulatory autopsy um, yeah. from recent tweets. Maybe he should delete his Twitter. I actually think a lot of people should delete their Twitter account. But I take oh your point. Brilliant cars, brilliant uh, uh, individual, but he needs to get that production. And it, to Absolutely. double is a giant ask quickly before we go. Ferrari, better investments in stocks. This is something I picked up on Bloomberg. Uh, it just, it kind of plays into the whole bubble story, doesn't yeah. it, to a degree. You know, we actually, you were better off buying a multi-million 1958-something Ferrari, notwithstanding the stock's done really well, but the actual cars are done even better. Yeah, so I suppose the, the surprise here was it was a 62 Ferrari that went for 700 million rand. Um, I suppose what's most impressive is 25% gain on the Ferrari over the last four years in dollar terms. Um, and I, I suppose this is perfectly a perfect example of an asset bubble. Um, you need to look no further than fine art, Leonardo da Vinci's recent painting, going under the hammer for 450 uh, million US dollars. Um, and clearly, there's the a lot of on that. It's yeah. five billion. There's a lot of money floating around, which is which is clear signs of late in the market cycle. Yeah, late asset bubbles, and we've still got. I mean, just quickly go back to the earlier point. We still got historically low rates. I mean, we're not even at those mediums yet. We're kind of still edging towards them, feeding these bubbles. You have to wonder if a bubble were to burst, what ammunition a central bank would have with rates rock bottom at the moment. That's a great point because that's typically been it, and that's what we saw in, in 08. They, they cut those rates, and it's the one. The US is a little more ahead of the curve. They've got their rates a little bit higher. Europe has no wiggle room. Yeah. I, I mean, even us in South Africa has very, very little yeah. wiggle room. And it was a point I made before we came on air. My concern is not that there's a bear market coming. There absolutely is. But I'm just not sure we've got the ammunition yet to, we're not ready yet to fight no. it, which means it could be a really, really ugly bear. It, it may well be. We're very slow in response, so you've got to wonder what sorts of tools that come up with. Bear in mind, 2007. I suppose QE was a fairly foreign concept to us, so, yep. so they are capable of inventing things, um, but there's no doubt in my mind that they are today very short of ammunition. <laughs> I like the inventing part. That might be what saves us. And of course, the young people out there, no idea what we're talking about. They've never seen a bear market. We're going to a short break. When we will come back, we'll take a look at Signia's fourth industrial revolution, Global Equity Fund with Carl Hewitt. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio is Stephen Schultz from Momentum. Joining us on the line to discuss Signia's fourth industrial revolution, Global Equity Fund, is Carl Hewlett. Uh, Carl, thanks for joining us for, uh, on, on the line. I, I was actually on air probably beginning of last year when Davos was happening. Uh, your unit trust was relatively new, chatting with, with, with your CEO Magda around it. But let's quickly recap what that fourth revolution is. The first was mechanization steam. Second was sort of mass production, motor cars in the early 1900s, digital revolution in the 80s and 90s. Uh, talk us through what this fourth revolution that we're seeing is. Good evening, Simon. Um, the fourth revolution, it's when technology becomes embedded within societies and the, the human body. So it's all the extensions that we've had of technology and how it impacts our lives, how it becomes part of us. 
Gotcha. So, and it's taking, we're talking here, I mean, artificial in, uh, intelligence, obviously, uh, uh, self-driving cars are going are gonna to fit into this. I'm thinking CRISPR, which is live gene editing, which is another whole game entirely. Um, can so new economics composite, they were doing it initially, they still do it. Uh, those, that, that index has now been taken over by uh, S&P Dow Jones Global. Has that had any change to you? You're still using them as the, as the source of the stocks for the, 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 the funds? Yes, there's been no change to us. So you're correct. In March, S&P Global bought out Kensho, um, but no change in the way that we're managing the funds. We're still investing in the Kensho indices. So the top five at the moment, as you mentioned, some very exciting stuff. Uh, we've got the Kensho Virtual Reality Index, the Smart Buildings Index, the Wearables Index, the Autonomous, Autonomous Vehicles, and the fifth one being the Drone Index. So some exciting things. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Stephen. So, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I'm having a look at the, at the fun fact sheet here. So internet and, and biotech is obviously something that's, that's well publicized. But um, I find it particularly interesting that you've got very little exposure to, to tech in the form of financials um, or energy, which, which is obviously ripe for this fourth industrial revolution. You, you're spot on. So Kensho have just launched a um, blockchain technology and hardware index which speaks to um, all the various applications of blockchain, including financials. And they're busy uh, launching a democratized uh, banking, distributed ledger, and alternative financing and future payments index. So things that are on the way and, and seem to be part of uh, their offering. So this is, I mean, I remember when I spoke with, with, with Magda at the beginning of last year, <coughs> excuse me, th th they provide those different indices, and it's not a, a static number of indices. They're going to add new, new sections within the different industries and say, well, th this is new and upcoming. You mentioned blockchain a, a year and a half ago. We knew about it, but it wasn't yet really coming through. As new waves come in this fourth revolution, we'll see new indices come through from them. Exactly. And that's what can show... Uh, pride themselves on. They, they see themselves as an artificial intelligence company. The way that they put together their various algorithms, machine learning, neural networks, the way they, they link the different entities uh, in the market to try and seek out those themes, that's what they pride themselves on. When I chatted last year, the, the Kinsha were providing the, 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 the list of the stocks that, that would come out of their, their indices. Uh, you, you folks at Signia were putting them into your fund, uh, but then you were doing your waiting on your, on your own discretion. Is that still the case? Do you wait as per your own discretion as opposed to getting it from, from the index provider? Uh, correct. So the Signia Fourth Industrial Revolution ETF is invested in the Kensho New Economies Composite uh, Fund, well, tracks the, the Kensho New Economies Composite uh, Index, whereas for the Signia Fourth Industrial Revolution Unit Trust, we put together the underlying indices, the 16 indices, and we weight them according to our own uh, metrics. Ah, okay, that explains my next question, which was different stocks in the two indices. So, so the ETS, which are obviously trading on, on the JSC, those are prescribed in their entirety from the provider, whereas the unit trust, which folks would buy on their Lisp or, or uh, Alchemy, wherever the case may be, that's where you have a little more say over not the stocks, but how much of each stock. Exactly. We weight the indices uh, slightly differently. How many stocks are we looking at in each fund? Because I noticed, I mean, your top holdings are relatively modest in size, running around 1.6 in the, in the unit trust, 1.5 in, in, in the ETF. How many stocks running all the way through? Uh, looking between 300 and 320 stocks in, in each of the, um, in the underlying portfolios. 
I suppose that number does, does reflect a, a very decent amount of diversification. Um, but looking at the asset allocation, you've got about a third, maybe, maybe just over a third in information technology. We were just having a conversation about valuations and how expensive the market is at present. And I suppose no, are, few are more expensive than information technology. Are you a little bit nervous about how aggressive some of these counters have been valued and, and how late we are in the cycle? Is that something investors should be concerned about? I think investors always need to be concerned about valuation and, and look at the valuation of underlying stocks. Um, the, the FANG index, the New York Stock Exchange FANG index, sorry, FANG index is up 27% year-to-date in dollars, so that's had a, a really strong run, despite the pullback at the end of last month. Um, the Fourth Industrial Revolution Fund is up 7% year-to-date, uh, slightly ahead of the S&P, but uh, not, not as, as uh, exciting as what's, what the FANGs have done. Yeah, and w- what I notice here, Carl, is, is I mean, th- there's some of the stocks I, I do recognize. We've got Alphabet, NVIDIA, Garmin, uh, Apple come through uh, on, on, on the, the unit trust. We've got Lockheed Martin and a, and a couple of others I recognize. But it's not the traditional sort of weighting when I look at a, an S&P 500, perhaps, or even a, an S&P tech fund or a NASDAQ 100, which is you know very much skewed towards Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, that sort of thing. This is really going deep into in, into much nicher and, and, and more bespoke tech rather than traditional you know, Microsoft Office. It, it, precisely, and that's again what Kensho pride themselves in is, is using their, their tools and their technology to go through SEC filings and go through annual reports and uh, screen the internet for, to identify niche companies that, that will fit into the, the, the strategies that they are looking for. Diversification is key across, across that um, process and they then categorize each of the shares either core um, as being a pure play or non-core. And then within that, the core stocks are equally weighted, um, but overweighted slightly relative to non-core stocks. But again, equal weighting is, is, um, is important. Speaking of diversification, it, it feels a, a little bit like this is a short list of Silicon Valley. How do you, as a, as a global mandate, um, manage for, for currency risk, um, so beyond the US dollar, and I suppose a little bit of Geographic. I'm making the assumption that most of this is US-based. You're correct. Most of this is, is US-based. So the, the, the unit trust is um, predominantly US equities, uh, not cash, uh, it's not, not rands. So it fits in within our global US equity uh, portfolio, and the benchmark targets the S&P 500, so we, we see it as an alternative to our S&P 500 uh, portfolio. Yes, Benjamin. You uh, Stephen mentioned you know very light in, in, in financials and energy. You commented that that number will will shift over time as can so do some uh, add some new indices coming in. W- what struck me was your your biggest sector, obviously information tech, and I'm looking at the unit trust here. Uh, but then followed by industrials and healthcare, and you know Lockheed Martin, which which is they make aeroplanes. I mean, they're almost as old school as we can get. They're almost, I don't know, second industrial revolution. What what the tech that coming through? They might be older school companies, but they're at that forefront of technology in many cases. So we are getting diversification within the fund across, we've got some industrial, we've got some, some healthcare who use tech to improve their businesses and ultimately their bottom lines. Exactly. So you're always looking at, at companies that not necessarily have a core focus, but also a non-core focus that may be moving into that, that field. Um, Honda is a good example in, in the, the auto space. It may not be as racy as Tesla, but they're also looking at autonomous, autonomous vehicles. So uh, 
looking looking broadly. If, if we're looking at a, at a at a broad portfolio, my sense is the the the, the, the this fund, whether one's looking at the, the ETF listed on the JSE or perhaps uh, uh, the Unit Trust via a list platform or the like, this would be a, a complementary perhaps to a to a broad diverse portfolio, and and this would be, I want to say, your sort of exciting smaller part of a of a portf- portfolio. Carl, would that be a fair comment? I think that's that's spot on. Uh, the traditional ways of looking at portfolios used to be style investing, value and growth. And then uh, more recently, factor investing became, became something that was quite predominant in the way portfolios were put together. Now we're moving towards more uh, having a core portfolio in your large indices, and uh, then with satellites of, of thematic-based investing. And we see this as exactly that. It's a small satellite there to, to try and harness um, long-term returns that we see uh, from various themes. Uh, Stephen, we were talking earlier around, I mean, you were saying particularly uh, consumer staples. We're not going to see consumer staples here, I don't think. No, absolutely but, but, not. but within a portfolio, risk, you know, depending on your risk profile, th- this could take a, a, a small slice. You would not go boots and all into it. Look, I, I think You wouldn't certainly. go boots and all into anything. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I suppose this is a, it's a very similar theme and, and thematic-wise to, to emerging markets. Emerging markets have had a horrid 2018. No question, they do represent the new world order, much Mm -hmm. like this fund does. I think there's certainly a place for these small satellites within one's portfolio. One does need to limit the exposure. I think these are are very susceptible to to massive swings uh, when the market volatility picks up. Um, But but there's certainly a case to to add a, a component. Uh, Carl, coming back to you for, for the last few questions. Um, as we said, been running since uh, December 17 for the, 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 the unit trust, the, the ETF more recent, sorry, September 16, December 17 for the ETF. In, in terms of, of, of um, transacting, these are, are czar-based, so I'm buying them in RANDs. Uh, this is not part of my offshore allowance because Signia manages that process for me. Correct, yes. From a retail perspective, it's using Signia's um, offshore allowance, so you just buy it as, as RANDs and it's uh, seen as a RAND, rand investment. In, in terms of fees, uh, performance fees, I know it's on the, on the unit trust, I remember when we interviewed Magda, your CEO, last year she talked about performance fees. Are, are those still applicable if you're beat, beating underlying benchmark? Um, I'm not exactly 100% certain about the fees, but I do think you're right, there are performance fees on the, on the unit trust. Um, I'm just going through the fact sheet. Yes, yes. Uh, 10% outperformance of the, the benchmark, which is the S&P 500. Last question through to you. Are you, as I said, managing weightings on the unit trust? Are you, are you capping? I'm noticing your biggest holding is Alphabet and uh, NVIDIA Corp, uh, uh, both at, at 1.5%. Is that sort of your top le- line at how much you would put into any one particular stock for the fund? I think it's the actual top allocation depends on the overall portfolio and how many indices and how many stocks, but diversification is key. So we aren't likely to see much, uh, you know, much more than 2% in any one name. We're not going to get a 6% like Apple is in the S&P 500. That's the show for this week. My thanks to our guests, Stephen Schultz from Momentum, Carl Hewlett, uh, Head of Asset Allocation at Signia. Thanks to you very much for watching. I'll catch you same time, same place next week. Have a good evening.